Hey everyone, welcome to another Healthy Nomics podcast. Uh, I'm very excited for today's guest is Jay Deshari. Jay is a physiotherapist at Rebound Physical Therapy in Bend, Oregon. Uh, he's a certified coach through both the United States Track and Field Association and the United States Cycling Federation and a certified golf fitness instructor through the Titleist Performance Institute. Jay's built his uh, international reputation as an expert in biomechanical analysis as a director of the Speed Clinic in the, at the University of Virginia. Jay is also the author of The Anatomy of Runners and writes columns for numerous other magazines. Welcome, Jay. Hey, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Excited to talk to you um, and, and dive a bit deeper into some of the work you're doing. Uh, I guess, first off, uh, could you, uh, I gave a bit of a background on you and who you are and what you're up to, but uh, maybe perhaps uh, you could provide a, a bit more detailed version and, uh, and uh, yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, so I, I, um, you know, I, I always kind of like to set the stage a little bit. Um, you know, I guess my, my uh, whole reason for choosing my career path was totally selfish. Um, I got really tired of getting hurt not knowing why and <laughs> getting sort of vague <laughs> answers. So um, I, I don't like getting vague answers. <laughs> I tried to find out better answers. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, yeah, eventually I decided on going to uh, physical therapy school and um, learned a lot. I wanted to figure out how my body worked and what it did. And um, I got out of school and practiced for a while. I was able to help a number of people, but realized I was still very, very frustrated because um, I wasn't getting the answers that I wanted to get. So I uh, wound up in a position uh, running the biomechanics lab at University of Virginia for uh, a number of years. And uh, it's a really interesting experience because I got to blend um, you know, the, the, the aspect of kind of clinical care where you look at, um, you know, kind of clinical things and, and blend that with the sports science and kind of biomedical engineering world where you actually do measure things and got to see how, mm-hmm. um, you know, clinical aspects really kind of, you know, make a difference and, and uh, impact uh, biomechanics. So do you, I mean, is your work now, I guess you work in the past primarily with athletes or did you work with sort of the general public as well or? Uh, yeah, I work with everyone, so um, I, I definitely wind up seeing more of the athletic side, uh, but um, I work everybody from, you know, people who've got an Olympic medal around their neck to, uh, you know, moms with four kids who just want to be able to run 30 minutes, you know, three or four times a week for stress relief. Uh, you know, what I do really isn't any, any different, and I think, you know, people think that, you know, they're not, quote, worthy of, uh, you know, higher tech evaluation, and um, I see just the same problems in elites as I do in recreational folks, so... Um, uh, yeah, love it. Um, so your book, uh, Anatomy for Runners, uh, I've read it and really enjoyed it. Um, helped me tap uh, into sort of my inner uh, exercise science geek a bit, which uh, which is always good. Um, unlocking your athletic potential for health, speed, and injury prevention. So, um, what was your goal with this book? So, what what made you decide to write it? Yeah, you know, it comes down to one simple thing, right? Like, I think people have a right to know what exercise does to their body. <laughs> um, and, and I think that, you know, in the first third of the book, I, I try and make just, you know, a bunch of kind of simple analogies to, and, and to, to, you know, how your body is affected by training. And I think that, you know, as a society, and even for coaches and clinicians, you know, we have a really good understanding of what happens, you know, if you say, I'm going to go out and do, you know, zone three miles today, right, or zone four miles, and all this, anybody yeah. can tell you, like, okay, your heart rate intensity is going to be in this range, and we sort of get that. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I always I make the analogy, it's kind of like training your engine. It's pretty well understood. Um, 
but you know, engines have to be supported by chassis, and and I think that people don't have a good understanding about how their body um, adapts to exercise. Um, you know, your bones heal at a different rate than your tendons do, and your tendons are affected differently by than you know, your cartilage. And so, um, I think it's you know, people always say listen to your body when you're exercising, and it's wonderful advice, but you have to know what to listen for. Uh, and I think that the, the under, you know, one of the big goals I have is to try and give people information so they would know how to kind of you know plug in what they're feeling in their body with, with what's really happening to the tissues. Yeah, I mean that was sort of my favorite part of the book, sort of the background at the beginning, and then um, diving into bits of the self-diagnosis, which um, you know I found myself testing my uh, mobility, my ankle mobility, and hamstring flexibility in the living room a couple nights ago, and my, my wife's like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> um, but um, but no, I really like that. And I thought you know, you know I have a, a, an exercise science background, so obviously I you know I understand it all. But I thought uh, just the way you wrote it, I mean, it's great tools for anyone to have. You know, and how can I test if I have the right amount of flexibility in my hamstrings for running? Because you know, often people think you know if I can't, you know, if I don't have ninety degrees, well, it's not good enough for running. Well, from you know from what I've read in your book, you know, having seventy degrees. Is, is good enough for running. Plenty. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you just need enough. You know, it's, it's a, you know, one of the things people always talk about is, you know, well, you have to be flexible to run. It's like, well, you just need enough. You don't need more. You know, more has not been shown to to do anything beneficial for us. So, uh, yeah, just, you know, trying to tell people that the things that you need. It's like, you know, as, as a runner, people always talk about form, and form is very important in running, but it's important to understand what you as a runner kind of have to bring to the table. Exactly, and anyone who reads your book, I would encourage them not to skip over the beginning chapters because, you know, I think a lot of people, it's easy just to skip towards the exercises and the, the pretty pictures and, um, you know, start looking down, but the background is essential. Um, you know, give yourself the tools to, um, you know, to know your body and know what's happen- happening when you, you go for a run or something's bothering you or, or your cadence off, et cetera, so... Sure. Um, yeah. Um, so, on to running injuries. Um, you know, I know you see probably tons of different injuries, but um, you know, what are some of the the big problem areas you see uh, on a day to day basis, both with you know high level running um, athletes and you know your regular weekend warriors? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think you know the, the top ones I see are um, uh, you know the technical term is kind of patellofemoral pain syndrome. It's really just kind of you know the pain in the front of the knee. The uh, runner's knee, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Run, again, runner's knee is kind of a you know, runner's knee can be sort of you know five or six different things. Okay, but, uh, but yeah, runner's knee can be patellofemoral problems. It can also be you know fat pad impingement. It's also called jumper's knee sometimes. That's more of mm-hmm. the, the fat pad problem. Um, but I see uh, definitely a, a, a lot of uh, anterior knee pain. Um, I see a lot of shin splint problems. I see lots of Achilles issues. Uh, lots of low back pain. Um, uh, IT band syndrome. The whole gamut. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one thing, um, you know, a lot of people, like runners, like, me included, you know, read a lot of blogs and stuff, and you see a lot of the articles in newspapers, and you go, oh, it's all in the hips, you know, and obviously the hips are very, very important for many things, but, um, you know, there's a lot of different aspects to look at, I'm sure, when you're diagnosing running injuries from, you know, the feet to the, the hips to posture, et cetera. Can you expand on that a bit? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, it's a great point. I mean, you know, it's funny. When somebody comes to me from a vow, often they'll say, you know, I have a site of pain here, and they'll tell me some location, and the first thing I do is not look there. Um, you know, <laughs> um, sh- 
sure, you have symptoms, um, and, and we want to fix that. I mean, I don't want people to have symptoms. I want them to feel feel better. Um, but, you know, that's not my job is to fix symptoms. If you want to fix symptoms, all you have to do is basically rest and stop doing what you're doing, and the area will calm down and get better. But if you want to fix the problem, you have to look at, you know, how the body's moving. Um, and, you know, everything, the, the song you learned when you are a kid, you know, hip bone connected to the knee bone, uh, yeah. that's all true. And um, you have to look at what the, the body's doing comprehensively. So, uh, you know, I try and find the point at which things are breaking down and fix that problem. Um, if, you know, your body's pretty well pretty well made, uh, uh, laid out and made up, and if, if you can just, you know, make sure it's moving correctly for the way that each individual is supposed to move, um, you know, it can tolerate a, a great amount of stress and strain through training. Um, but when you have some problems or flaws, you sort of broken, um, you know, in certain areas of your body, then, then, you know, load shifts to other areas, and those areas break down. They're overwhelmed. They were never designed to have the amount of load that they end up receiving. So um, it's important to think about, you know, again, you, you're training a body. You don't just train a knee or train an ankle. You have to think about your whole body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what about for people, I mean, especially me, and I'm sure a lot of other people, you know, I sit at a desk um, a lot of the day. Um, you know, what are some of the problems you see with people like me? Oh, a ton. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, where do you start? <laughs> yeah, it's, well, you know, it's like, it's like, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's funny. I mean, I actually and have I, a, a, a National Geographic cover I keep in my lab and I keep it with me. And sometimes if folks ask about posture, I just take out that, the, the, the National Geographic picture and people are like, wow, that's, they look really straight. Their neck's nice and long and they're standing correctly. And I'm like, yeah, and, and this is, this look like you. And they're like, no, it doesn't at all. You know, and, you know, in, you know, societies where people have to be active, um, they figure out if I have to carry, you know, rice and flour and water, et cetera, on my body, it hurts if I'm in poor positions. And mm-hmm. so, you know, those muscles that you have as kids, um, you know, crawling is, for infants is a great way to stimulate core activation, to get your shoulders to work correctly. Um, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And so, you know, as we age, we tend to kind of settle into more of a seated position. And um, and we lose that good skilled movement, and um, you know we really have a hard time um, because our you know certain muscles get tight, our hip flexors get tight, and pull our back into lots of arch or extension, uh, which creates problems uh, with you know all the muscles in the whole lower body. Um, our shoulders tend to get rounded forward, uh, which basically increases strain on our, on our neck, um, increases strain on our upper shoulders, and people wonder why they have you know neck problems from sitting at mm-hmm. computer all day long. Um, you know your, your head's kind of like a big bowling ball, right? And if you stick that bowling ball, you know, over your body where it should be, all the muscles can work a little bit to support it. Um, yeah. But when you stick that head out in front of you, straight in the computer all day long, those muscles in your neck are basically working all day long to keep your bowling ball from falling off. And now they get tired. Yeah, exactly. Now, what about specific to runners um, for people that are sitting a lot? I mean, obviously, the hip flexors are in a you know, flex position uh, or shortened position, you know, much of the day. Um, is there anything else um, I mean, you mentioned uh, hamstrings as well, lower back. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, yeah, all, all the research points the idea where, you know, when, when people who people who sit in, in again, those kind of slumped positions, and they, they tend to have the, the tightness in the muscles, um, those changes in position when your spine kind of, you know, rolls into, into an arch in your pelvis, um, it has a tip forward. So a simple way to think about this is, you know, most runners who, who sit all day long have a, a kind of a common postural issue, right? So the, their cereal bowl, as I call it, the pelvis, tends to sort of spill forward, and yeah. the back starts to arch to compensate um, backwards. And so that's the way they sit. That's the way they walk. That's the way they stand. They perceive it as normal. And the problem is they carry the exact posture right into their running. Um, and that posture alignment causes a, a few big problems. 
One is it causes you to inhibit your ability to activate your, your glutes and your hamstrings and the muscles inside of your shin and your lower and your and your foot. So it's like saying if I just snap my fingers and said I can I can make you, you know, hundred percent strength in every single one of your muscles instantly and you just adopt poor position, you just basically shifted your ability to activate those muscles. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a big issue. Um, the second thing is that postural alignment is really inefficient for running because it, it forces you to contact too far in front of your body, which is bad for economy. So, um, it, you know, correcting your posture when you're running is really critical and something I definitely want people to pay attention to. But before we even talk about running, we have to talk about correct posture when you're sitting and standing and walking because, you know, those are pretty easy tasks, right? And so if we can think about correcting our posture when we're not running, it gives us a goal to shoot for and something to find when we're running because we know what our target is. Exactly. Um, you mentioned contacting uh, the ground too far in front of your body. How, how do you know if you're actually doing that? Is, is there certain things that you know, perhaps your quads will work a bit more, or you'll fatigue in a certain area a bit more uh, when that's happening? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so when you when you contact too far in front of you, um, you definitely overwork your quads. I mean, if you just look at um, all the fancy measurements, like in my lab, um, anytime you contact in front of you, you force your quads to work overtime. So um, the quads are, are a very large muscle, um, and they have an okay leverage uh, ability to kind of exert force, but... Um, your glutes are, are a very large muscle and have a much, much better uh, uh, leverage or, or position to basically apply torque to the body. So um, it, it's really um, effective to try and move that contact point back underneath you uh, as you're running. So I could see, I mean, you could probably get away with it, you know, maybe a 10K runner, but, I mean, I'm training for a marathon right now, so I'm assuming the more I'm using my glutes, uh, the better, because, I mean, you, you get to, you know, kilometer 30. Um, I'm in Canada here. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, your quads are just, they, they won't be able to take it. Um, but if you're using those glutes, you're going to save those quads, and um, you know your glutes are more able to handle that load throughout that distance. Yeah, exactly. It's all about you know economy and efficiency, right? And so you know, your quads are going to require more. Um, you know they're going to fatigue quicker, uh, and they just can't generate as much force. Um, your glute, you know, while it's a mover, you know, it does tend to move your hip. It's, it's part of its job. It's, it's the most effective mover you've got for hip control. Um, it's also a postural stabilizer. And it helps keep your, your body sort of, you know, again, in line. Um, so it has a double effect function there. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's just, you know, kind of like, you know, we're hitting both sides of the equation here. You have to have strong glutes to plug into running, and you have to basically tap into them when you're running as well. So it's, it's a form issue as well as a, as a body issue. Mm-hmm. How, how long does it take for someone who is, say, not activating their glutes very efficiently to getting them to, to fire their glutes um, to a point where, you know, they're improving their uh, – their running stride is it are we talking weeks or months or um yeah it, it depends i mean the, the people who you know flat out don't have hip extension if they just can't get their hip behind them to begin with um you know those folks they, they literally don't have the movement so that's it's you know it takes time to get uh to get things to open up um mm-hmm. you know it, it takes about you know two and a half to three months before you, you see changes in flexibility um through, through stretching so um those folks it takes a little while to get to get things to really transfer over um but uh the, the folks who have the range um but just kind of can't you know activate it um i mean i i start on day one with kind of you know what i call kind of basic phase one exercises and those are all about you know teaching teaching people to better control the mobility they do they already have mm-hmm. um and then if we're if we are opening up the hip, you know, stretching's not enough. Um, you know, we've done research and show that just because you stretch someone, um, you know, you do see increases in length, right? So you open up the joint. But if if you look at, you know, do they actually carry that over uh into their running technique? They don't. 
Um, and so the idea is to try and you know make sure that just because you get range, you are you're, you're strengthening into the new range you're getting each and every day. Okay. Perfect. Um, so moving on here, um, I wanted to touch base just on some of the the common running myths. So, you know, there's probably tons out there, and I feel like often you know reading newspapers and stuff, people can get misled even more. Um, what are some of the common myths that uh, that you see sort of a on a day-to-day basis. Oh sure, I mean I think that you know the whole the whole barefoot running uh, you know movement of the past uh, you know a few years has been great because it's gotten people to pay attention to things and you know out of this the media has kind of run with the ideas you know you have to land your forefoot and you know you want to really land barefoot. Well, I don't think everybody has to run barefoot all the time. It's a great drill, um, but I mean it's not realistic for most folks. Um, and you know the whole idea behind landing on your forefoot, I mean you can land on your forefoot or your midfoot or your heel and run well. Um, it's just one of many factors we look at. So, um, you know, it, it, it's really impossible for me to say you should land like X. Um, for the for the vast majority of folks, um, I, you know, if they land more in their midfoot, that's probably a little bit better, but but not always. And and, mm-hmm. and again, people change when they land their feet on, on on you know terrain, uphill, downhill, speed increases. We change things. So, you know, the way in which we run does change. Um, so. I think that, you know, the research supports the idea, and, and the way I keep people is, you know, for a given speed, it's better to land as close to your body as you can um, for a given speed. And if you land on your, on your heel and midfoot or forefoot, that's just what you do. It's just, again, one of many things you look at. So yeah. uh, that's just one, one big one. Um, you know, the second thing is, uh, you know, cadence. Um, you know, people are talking about the idea that everybody must be at 180. Um, and I, I sort of am kind of guilty of this. I think a long time ago I, I, I was one saying, yep, you should increase your cadence and be at 180. And, you know, the reality is, well, records have been set anywhere between 178 and uh, 214 RPM. So there's a, there's a wide range there. Um, and, again, cadence is just one of those factors that changes. Um, so I think that you know, trying to, you know, a lot of novice runners do have a very low cadence. They're probably in the 160-ish range. And for those folks, they do need to yeah. work on improving their turnover for sure. Um, and there's research that, you know, shows that. Um, and, and, again, improving cadence also decreases the the, uh, the the torque or the twisting force in the joints, which is a good thing for injury prevention. Um, but, but you know, to say that everyone must run with a certain cadence um, is, is, is really overreaching that statement. So, um, you know, I, I'd say that, you know, monitoring your cadence, uh, is effective, um, and just seeing what you are typically, seeing what feels comfortable. Um, if you're in that kind of 172 to you know 190 range or something, I really wouldn't worry about it and fixate it a whole lot. Okay. Uh, what about stretching? You know, there's now the big thing is I guess less stretching or, or if not no stretching before running, perhaps maybe more dynamic uh, warm up and then stretching after. Is that is that what you would say or? Yeah, so, um, yeah, let's clear up a few things here. So, um, one, um, you know, you only stretch if you, if you don't have enough range for the sport that you're doing. So, mm-hmm. you know, the demands of runners are much different than the demands of gymnasts when we talk about mobility. Um, you know, if, if you're, if, if you're in a sport that needs tons of end range motion, like gymnastics or, you know, um, you know something along those lines, th- then yeah, it's, it's something you have to do every day to keep things, at, you know, at, at range and keep them solid. Uh, but for runners, you just need enough. Again, more range of motion is not really needed. So um, if the, the goal is to get uh, folks, you know, more, more limber so they can get better range of motion to run, we always stretch after. So when I say stretching, I'm talking about li- literally lengthening tissue. And interestingly enough, when we stretch, we're literally ripping tissues open. Um, so ripping tissues open after you work out uh, is a good time to stretch. 
Um, we never rip the body apart before a workout if our goal is to get a good workout. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's just like common sense, right? But that's, that's why we don't stretch before, quite honestly. Um, when we talk about, you know, pre-run activities like dynamic warm-ups and dynamic stretching, um, I like the word dynamic warm-up a whole lot um, because the purpose is to kind of prime your, your nerves and your muscles and kind of wake them up for the run. Um, it's not to actually lengthen your tissues. Um, so, you know, you may call it dynamic stretching, but you're not really stretching. To, again, to stretch a muscle requires, you know, the dosage we've seen out there is, you know, you need to do it um, four to six days a week of, of stretching for three minutes at a time per muscle, okay? I was going to ask you that because, yeah, so holding it for at least three minutes. Yeah, so it's going for, you know, a total, right? So if you're going to do a minute on, yeah. break, minute on, it's fine. But, you know, yeah. total, a total dosage of, you know, three to five minutes um, done four to six days per week, um, that's very much, you know, that, that's a whole 180 degrees um, from, you know, that kind of pre-warm-up, you know, bounding, kind of, you know, 10, 15-second stretches. Um, those are great for basically kind of waking up your nerves and, and telling your body, look, let's kind of, you know, relax on our muscular system um, from a tightness standpoint. Let's get it ready to move. Um, and, and, and no doubt people say, well, wait a second, you know, I feel tight, I do some dynamic warm-up, and I feel more limber. Again, that's just kind of waking up your nerves and adjusting your body's perception of where you're tight mm-hmm. and, then you, and, and teaching you to move better. It's not actually making anything longer. Okay. Interesting. Uh, I want to go back to actually the, the minimalist sort of barefoot running um, craze. Um, and just looking sort of from my standpoint, you know, I run – I run in a Mizuno Wave Rider. I think it's, it's probably got a you know a fairly high heel lift. Um, I do have a couple other pairs of shoes with a, a lower heel drop, um, which I've used. And um, one pair in particular, you know, a couple of years ago, went out and you know went for not 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 a long run for me, but definitely noticed my my calf muscles were shattered for probably two days. Um, but I guess my question is, why should one change to a more minimalist shoe if they don't have any problems with the yeah, shoe they're wearing um, now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I would say that if you're having zero problems, there's absolutely zero conclusive data for me to look at and say you're going to either run faster or decrease your injury risk. And that's okay. shocking for people to hear, but that's the truth. Right now, there is no conclusive data to show that groups of people have had less injuries or have been able to improve performance by switching to, to, you know, switching shoe styles. Now, if we step away from that article, you know, that that argument to say that you know that's the overarching thing we have to focus on, um, yep. you know, we can get into a little more detailed discussion. Um, I, I, you know, there's no research out there that shows that barefoot running is better. There's also no research out there that shows that traditional shoe construction, meaning you know, elevated heels. Uh, and um, praise control devices really make a difference at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, injury rates that we've seen from running, even we correct for the fact that there's just more people running now, um, have, have not gone down at all. Um, so, you know, we like to think that if, if all this technology really is going into footwear, we like to see it making a difference, and it's just not. Um, now, I think that points to a few things. One, it's not just about the shoes, right? I mean, it's also about people. Um, yeah. It's a little bit different topic. Uh, but, um, but, <laughs> but, you know, I, yes, I, I, um, I, I have seen in, in my research, uh, in my working with runners, you know, getting, getting objective data on them every single day, um, you know, I have seen situations where I've told people, look, there's really no, no, no need for you as an individual to switch. Um, and I've definitely seen many situations where I was like, look, based upon a number of things I'm seeing, um, we need, we, 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 it would be dealt better to have you in some different footwear. Um, you know, I've used footwear as a filter. 
Um, it kind of like it changes the interaction that your body has with the ground um, somewhat. It's not going to, you know, make you faster or slower, um, but they do change the way we contact. They change how our muscles um, stabilize and activate. So, um, you know, shoe prescription right now at the state today, you know, um, I view it very much as a one-on-one type of evaluation where, you know, I look at individual aspects of people and based upon individual aspects, I definitely make some pretty good recommendations um, for each person. But um, to say that everyone should be in this shoe, we can't really say that right now. Yeah, I mean, I would say um, I I do like the feel of a more minimalist shoe. Um, You know, they're typically lighter, um, and I do like the feel. You're a bit closer to the ground. You know, you feel like you're sort of in a sports car instead of a a minivan, (laughs) Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, So I do like the feel, but... um, you know, and people should read your book to learn more. But if they're if they want to try it, um, you know, I know there's a few things um, they should do, and it's definitely sort of working on their mobility about their foot and ankle, etc. You know, and they can read more about it in your book. But um, um, but would you recommend? I mean, if people are looking to experiment a bit, um, that they should try it, um, keeping in mind that they'll need to have ease ease into it and. Uh, also, you know, look about the, the different mobilities about their foot and ankle, et cetera. Oh, for sure. I, I, I think any runner should. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I view, um, you know, I view shoes kind of like bikes. Um, you know, I have a commuter I ride on back and forth to work every single day. Um, and it's, you know, while I can take it in the trail, I can take it on a road ride. It's not the best choice, right? Um, yeah. I'm certainly not going to take my, you know, my high dollar mountain bike with full suspension around town because it'll get stolen. So, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, it's all about, you know, picking the right tool for the job. And, um, you know, I, I have a variety of different shoes. Um, and I run in different shoes depending on what my goals of the run are. Um, yeah. you know, if you told me our goal is to do speed work, um, you know, I, I'm never going to pick out my zero drop minimalistic shoes, um, ever. <laughs> um, I, yeah. but I run most of my miles in, you know, very minimal products. Um, but I can't run fast in them, um, you know, for, for, for me, uh, and for most folks, but certainly for me, I need a little bit of a rocker, uh, and a, a little bit of a, a, a toe rollover, toe spring in the shoe, um, and you don't get that from being zero drop. You know, I, I typically find shoes that are about four to six millimeters, um, work really well for me to run fast mm-hmm. in. So, yeah. um, you have to get the right tool for the job. Okay. Um, what about the shoe industry? So, sort of, where do you think it's headed? I mean, every shoe company now is, Got it seems sort of a minimalist range. Um, you know, it kind of looks like we're they're heading back to designs that you know, which were the running shoes that came out in the late seventies. You know, the early Nike waffle shoes. So, um, what do you think's happening, or what's going to happen in the shoe industry with regards to the technology? Yeah, so the shoe industry is is, uh, is an interesting time right now. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, the shoe industry you know was in you know the super minimalist when it started, right? Um, yeah. And uh, they were making minimal shoes back then in the 70s, and then things went to a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And, you know, to be realistic, I mean, most of the running shoes, I think, you know, the numbers out there show like 80% of the running shoes sold aren't really worn by runners. They're run by people to, you know, play in their garden or walk the dog or whatever, um, or where to work in school. And so, you know, the companies figure out if they made shoes softer and more cushy, they'd sell more shoes. Um, mm-hmm. And they're a company. that That's, you know, that's that's not to fault them. Um but, uh, you know, the, the, over time, almost all the products out there for running sort of morphed into these, uh, you know, big, fluffy shoes. And so, um, you know, while they're very comfortable for walking, um, you know, they weren't the best thing for running. And so now, you know, we saw, you know, Vibram Five Fingers come out, and that shifted that pendulum way back to the other side, um, and they sold like hotcakes. 
Um, you know, I'll tell you my personal opinion is that, you know, one of the biggest things about Bob and Five Fingers was a fashion statement just because they looked so different. Um, yeah, I, I would agree. And I've never tried them, but, I mean, yeah, you certainly notice them if someone's wearing them. Yeah, and so it's interesting because, you know, right now in the shoe industry, it's a really interesting time because, you know, the sales of Vibram Five Fingers are plummeting. Um, not many people are buying them. And so you could say, well, this minimalist stuff is just hokey. Or you could say, you know, the, the Vibram Five Fingers made up like 65% of the minimalist shoe market. And now that people aren't buying shoes that, that look that crazy, you know, you, you, can, you people are saying, oh, the minimalism is dead. Well, minimalism is not really dead. Um, you know, that type of fashion is, is obviously falling out of, out of, uh, out of vogue. Um, but you're seeing, you know, things shift, I think, yeah, definitely not towards where they were, not towards the barefoot. They're shifting back towards the middle ground. And, um, you know, I, I'm working, I work with a number of shoe industries in a bunch of different projects. And, you know, all the shoe industries or shoe manufacturers are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to find out where is that better middle ground, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the sweet it, spot, it, I guess. Yeah, you know, is it about the drop? Is it about the softness? Is it about, you know, what is what factors really do produce, um, you know, th- produce, you know, that, that sweet spot? And, and, and how do you match that sweet spot to the runner, which I think is an even uh, even in bigger, um, you know, story out there. So, uh, yeah, lots of lots of shakeups, and it's good. It's, it's good for the industry. Yeah, that's a good transition into um, children's shoes. I, I've got a 14-month-old boy, and, um, you know, I, I love running shoes, so... Every time uh, you know we go to the states, where well, shoes are a lot uh, cheaper than, than Canada, um, you know I want to load up on shoes for him. But uh, I'd love to hear your opinions and thoughts on um, shoes for kids. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting when you have a, a kid, you know, you're in, obviously either barefoot or in socks or whatever, and then um, you know they have those. Um, uh, I'm not plugging them, but they call I call them robies. You know, this kind of just leather soled, flat nothings, um, yeah. and. Uh, and then it seems like, you know, they have that option out there for kids. And then once they hit that, you know, one and a half to two standpoint, like they, most shoe companies just switch into these, like, insanely stiff, rigid things, which look like what mom and dad have. But in reality, you're, like, about as stiff as you putting on a concrete shoe. Uh, they just don't move. You know, the, the kids are so light, they can't bend that shoe. Um, and, and they're narrow in the toe box. There's a number of problems. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'd say a few things. If you look at, you know, your kid's foot, you're going to notice the widest part of their foot their toes, not the ball of the foot. And if you look at your foot, you notice the widest part of your foot is is most likely, unless you you know raised in an unshod society, um, likely going to be the ball of your foot, not your toes. Um, and so you know we kind of all practice this idea of Chinese foot binding. Um, and you know conventional shoes with tapered toe boxes look nice, um, but uh, you know they look like well, they should I should say they look like what we expect, right? Um, yeah. But they uh, they really provide a situation where over time we sort of crimp the forefoot, we narrow the structure, um, and we, it's a big problem. Um, and the problem is when you you know when you run about eighty five percent of your uh, your force under the foot is under your big toe, and if you allow that big toe to splay out, um, you get good contact and good support. Um, and if you look at, in, in the book, I have a, a picture of an X-ray of someone standing, um, and they're standing up. You can see how widely splayed their foot is when they're in mm-hmm. weight bearing. Uh, and I have a picture of that same foot in a shoe, and you can see that the, the shoe cannot splay. It's actually bound and constricted and, and narrowed. Um, and you just decrease your stability by being by being in a narrow toe box. So, um, you know, that's I, I'm, I'm a huge uh, proponent of wide toe boxes for kids. 
um, their foot needs to be able to splay. Uh, my goal is that my, both my kids' feet do not look like mine, <laughs> um, you know, because, because, again, we're never going to have a situation where they were born and raised in those narrow shoes, yeah. uh, narrow toe boxes. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing is, uh, you know, very little cushioning and very super supple. You know, I, I have what I call the, you know, the finger test. Um, you should literally be able to take a kid's shoe and put, you know, one end of it in your in, in your in your index finger, one end in your thumb, and just basically pinch your fingers together, and you should feel almost no resistance there. Uh, if there's any resistance, that shoe's way too stiff for your kids. Yeah, you know what? I tried that um, last night with a pair of my son's shoes, and um, you know what I thought looking at them? I thought, you know. They're pretty flexible, but they weren't. And, you know, he, you know, he's 14 months old, so there's no way that his foot is able to get any flex out of that shoe. So, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's interesting. I have an 18 month old right now. It's really funny. We, um, we, uh, we were out of town and, um, it was cold and he has just a bunch of, you know, super flexible things I like. And, uh, some, one of my friends had a pair of like snow boots. And I just stuck them on there real quick uh, to go outside. We're playing outside, and and they were you know more traditional kind of stiff snow boots. And I put them on him, and I put them on the ground, and he literally couldn't walk. He had no <laughs> idea what to do um, because yeah. they're used to having his foot bend. Um, but he was in this thing that didn't bend. You know, he only weighs you know 18 pounds or 20 pounds. You know, he yeah. wasn't heavy enough to actually bend the shoe, and he he literally was like, "What do I do now? How do I walk?" <laughs> yeah. Uh- that's great. Actually, yeah, the first time we put uh, snow boots on our little guy, same. I mean, same thing. He'd you know, never been in snow boots, so we took him outside, and his first few steps, you know, he looked like he was walking on, um, you know, on poles basically. <laughs> Just, yeah. Yeah, it was classic. Um, okay, so one last thing. Um, now I'm training for a marathon right now, so uh, for all those others training for a marathon, it's sort of it's very good plan of attack with regards to. Um, I guess sort of weekly check-ins with a physio or or any sort of healthcare practitioner or coach um, during the training plan, or do you just sort of go and um, you know if nothing's bothering you, just keep going. Um, you know, I know for my first marathon, I, I had a, a weekly, or pretty much a weekly, if not every ten days, appointment with my physio, and um, you know it seemed to really help keep on top of things. You know, I had some IT band syndrome creep up and was able to address that you know, fairly quickly. So just sort of wondering what your thoughts were there. Yeah, I have two things to point out. Um, yeah, number one, uh, yes, if you want to make really good tomato sauce, put better ingredients in your sauce, right? So mm-hmm. um, the better ingredients are your body. Um, and it's really critical to make sure you kind of stay on top of yourself. And, and, you know, we say listen to your body. It's important that, you know, you do kind of get a baseline measure. Um, I'm a big fan of, you know, yeah, you know, check yourself on single leg balance. Check yourself on single leg squat. Do some of the tests that I kind of outlined in the book. But the whole idea is to, you know, get a starting point. Um, and as you're running and training with higher mileage, you know, make sure that you're, you know, you continue to be ready for that higher mileage. Um, and uh, if you strengthen and have enough mobility, enough stability, then, then, then you know, you, you'll, you, the straining stresses on your body will be lowered for the mileage that you're at. Um, so that, that's certainly very critical and certainly been very effective. Um, one of the things I just want to point out is kind of simple advice for every runner doing uh, long-distance events, uh, and something I see, you know, just botched left and right. Um, I think for somewhere along the line, we sort of had this idea that, you know, marathoners have to run, you know, 20, 21, 22 miles. Even in some cases, some coaches have people run 24 miles before a marathon. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes a long time to recover from runs that long. And, yeah. you know, a lot, of, a lot of recreational novice folks try and model their training around uh, elite training. And I'll just put, put something out there, which is pretty interesting. Um, you know, Ryan Hall's 
longest run uh, is about two hours outside of race day. Okay. So, now, granted, he's running 20 miles in two hours. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But think about how many times his foot's contacting the ground. Think about the stresses that are acting on his body over two hours. And some folks may look at it and say, okay, well, I can't run as fast as he can, so I now have to run, you know, four hours to get my 20 miles in or, you know, whatever it may be, okay? Um, and so the idea is they may, you know, they're contacting the ground, you know, you know, a third to, you know, to, 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 um, to half as much times uh, over the course of the same distance. And so you start thinking about the stress level that your body receives per mile. Um, when we start becoming mileage junkies, you know, we're getting a lot of breakdown in our body. And mm-hmm. so I'm a huge fan of telling people, look, let's train for time. Let's not train for mileage. Um, you know, make sure that, because you know, it depends on terrain, right? I mean, I'm from New Orleans, and, uh, you know, New Orleans has, I think there's a bridge, which has about 30 feet of elevation gain on it, and that's it. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's easy to run, you know, 15 miles in New Orleans. Um, you know, I, I lived in Virginia for a number of years, which is very hilly, even just in town. Um, yeah. There was a five-mile loop I did uh, on the trail by my house, and I, I, at five miles, I hit about 1,200 feet of uh, elevation in just five miles. Wow. So, you know, I had to run for time there because if I tried to bang up the same mileage, I was exhausted. So, um, you know, I would say just, you know, be realistic about what, what you think long run is. Um, long run doesn't have to be three and four and five hours. Uh, long run can be, you know, an hour and a half to two hours. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so that's one thing. And then, uh, just, yeah, just make, make sure that your form isn't changing. Um, if, if you, if you notice that, look, after a long run, the day after your long run, your form is breaking down, you're putting too much stress in your body. Okay. Excellent advice there, Jay. Thanks for that. Um, so being respectful of your time, we'll, uh, we'll end it here, but, uh, let us know, uh, where we can find out more about you and keep up to date with, uh, with what's happening. Of course, you've got the book, Anatomy for Runners, which is available on Amazon and anywhere else. Correct. Yeah, and uh, I, I, uh, I have a little blog I host as well. Uh, it's called um, anathletesbody.com, and uh, I try and put some relevant stuff out in there whenever I can. So hope it helps. Cool. Well, I'll make sure I uh, put that into the um, the post, the, the show notes there. Uh, so thanks again, Jay, and um, we will talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you. Please stand by.